0: Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing something a little different than our previous episodes. Rather than talking about a particular movie or game or show or other geek culture tentpole, we're going to cast a somewhat broader net this time, and we'll be discussing a very special kind of magic. Tonight, we'll be talking about our most memorable live performances that we've attended. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't really get live music. I didn't get music much at all, actually. I did not grow up in a particularly musical household. You know, it wasn't until I was an early teenager that I actually got my first music. A cousin of mine decided, it's time for you to get music here. Bought me a couple albums, and then suddenly, you know, I was just sort of thrust into the world of a musical journey, and then you start to discover music on your own, as kids do, and I was blown away by it. But one thing I didn't really care for at all, were live performances of any kind, especially from acts where I had recorded performances. I didn't understand the value of a live performance. If you have it recorded, listen to the recording. Like That's what you have. It's safe. It's stable. The, what, go with that. Why would you ever... I couldn't understand the, the notion of a live performance. And It wasn't until some years later when I started actually going to live performances, when I could really appreciate the special quality and the magic of them. I mean, there's already decades of research that show just how music can be extraordinarily therapeutic, right? Music can cause your brain to release, you know, dopamine, the feel good hormone, decrease your anxiety, lower your blood pressure, you know, can all kinds of like biological effects just by listening to music. And it has that power over us. And live music is that times 10, right? It's there's something to a live performance, it's, it's authentic in a way that a recording perhaps isn't or certainly can't be, you know, it can be vulnerable. It, there can be mistakes. It's fleeting. It's, it's, it's in that time. It requires a chemistry uh, with the, with the performance performers, and also with the audience itself. You know, it has a kind of soul in the way that recorded music might not necessarily have good live performance, a great live performance, a, a, a special one. It is a moment unique to the musicians and to the audience and within the audience itself, it's unique to you. The people around you have a different experience than, than you did. Um, might be shared, but never never entirely. And that same unique relationship we have with music is what affects us so much deeper when we experience it live. So that's what we'll be talking about today, and I'm really excited to, to get into it. With me today are our usual suspects. On bass, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. On lead guitar, Tom Hespos. Hello, hello. <laughs> and on drums, Joe Pace. Bang, bang. <laughs> Everyone, Welcome you know Tom why don't we start with you can you talk us through you know your moment of truth when it comes to live musical experiences and 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 the story that leads up to it
1: oh sure sure i'm with you bill so like you know i've always thought of music as sort of like temporal and situational you know what i mean by that is we attach songs and we attach artists to time periods and events in our lives I got to bring Chris rock into it because I think he had a great quote that summed it up and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said that people have a certain fondness for whatever music was popular right around the time they started getting laid. And <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's, true. it's funny. Cause it's true. Yeah.
1: When I go back, like, and I think about all, you know, you know, music that I've seen, they all like fall into these like little periods and they get associated with different time periods in my life. Uh, I I saw one that was a a picture (laughs) recently that my mom dug up. I wish I could find it to to show it to you guys, but I I went through a few boxes and I couldn't find it. It, It's like attached very much to that high school period in my life. And it's me and nine of my closest friends and we're all decked out in acid wash denim and we're cramming into this sort of like beat up white prom limo. On our way to go see Van Halen at Nassau Coliseum, and you know you, you cringe when you see the photo, uh, you know between the haircuts and and the the outfits, and you know this is before we even got our driver's licenses, and we all like think we're all badass. But you know what? Like I am constantly trying to go to concerts to recreate the feeling that I had at that particular point. So there's a bunch of us, you know, from my high school period who still go where whenever Van Halen tours. And we love it because it gives us just that little whiff of being, you know, 14 or 15 again. And you know, I love that aspect of music that it can bring you like a live performance can be attached to something and it can bring you instantaneously back to, to that time. So, you know, that's my high school period where you have, you know, Van Halen and ACDC and Guns N' Roses and White Snake and all these like heavier bands. But, you know, we were only 75 miles, I think uh, where I grew up was, you know, from the cultural center of the New York uh, universe, cultural center of, of everything. So I started at that point to get a taste of going in and, there were a lot of friends and people that we knew in bands. uh, So, you know, we wanted to support them. And we go to places like, you know, CBGB and like, you know, divey sorts of venues to, to go see them and support them. But then, you know, you sort of move off into college and, you know, I've gone to college with two of you and I think you were there at the same time and being in Southwest Virginia in the early nineties, that action was a lot different, but I think I had some very valuable music live music experiences there. I think probably the highlight of that was uh, I got to hang out uh, with the Gin Blossoms in a hotel room <laughs> after they had played, I, I think it was JMU. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but...
0: Uh, <laughs> that would be James Madison University. James for those Madison
1: music. University. Yeah. They opened up for Toad the Wet Sprocket, uh, which was you know a favorite band of mine at the time. What happened there was you know we were at the concert and Gin Blossoms gave like their hotel information to this like really insanely hot girl that one of my fraternity brothers was hanging out with, and we just <laughs> kind of went to the motel and jammed her foot in the door. Like <laughs> they, the thing that I loved about it was they were so cool about you know us being there even though like we weren't supposed to be there. They like sat down, they gave me an interview for the school paper. It, it, it was fantastic,
3: dude. Jealousy. Yeah, right? <laughs> jealousy. Hey, jealousy. Hey. <laughs>
1: you know, and, and then, you know, you've got the post-graduation period. You know, I, I headed back to New York and I saw, like, a lot of stuff in my 20s. That's when I developed a policy, which, you know, I, I called the Just Go policy, which was, you know, if, like, anybody had tickets to anything and they invited me to go, I didn't care, like, who the artist was. I felt like, you know, I, I missed out on a couple of things in college that, like, I really would have liked to have been at, so the blanket answer to everything just became yes. Like, oh, you want me to go to that? You know, absolutely. Like, a bunch of co-workers invited me to go see The Who at uh, the <laughs> Garden, and I'm like, I'm in for that. Absolutely, you know, but, like, I took a girl, she wanted to go see CNC Music Factory, and Call nice. Bed and awesome. Tony, 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 and, like, yeah, we went, not, uh, not my favorite live event, but uh, you know, Jones Beach. It was-
3: you went to my junior prom. Yeah.
0: <laughs> 10 seconds. How was Sea Music Factory?
1: It was Did awful. Did they make you sweat? The whole thing was awful. It was- <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to go deeper than that. I you, know. was just wanted to know. Please continue. such a great girl, you know? Like- yeah. <laughs> I, of course It's oh, a shame. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the parking lot scene before in Jones Beach is out, you don't know if you've ever been to Jones Beach Amphitheater, but the stage is like out in the water, it's a typical yeah. like, Long Island venue, all the actions in the parking lot ahead of time, so you know, there was that fun that came with it too, but I had another period, I call it the dot-com period, when you had a new company that was launching, you had to do it with appropriate fanfare, so I got invited to this, and I swear this happened, and if you don't believe me, I uh, I have witnesses, but um, <laughs> CNET and Intel launched this thing called Media Dome back in the day. It was, I want to say it was 1999, and me and a couple co-workers got invited to the launch party, and, uh, you know, we went there, we drank a couple dozen free Heinekens, and somehow, I'm really fuzzy on how it happened, but... I ended up on stage with the Fugees.
0: <laughs> and, wow. You know,
1: I think it was, you know, my friend Frank was kind of making a pain in the neck out of himself, like at the front of the stage. He's like, this guy can play, you know. So I'm up on stage with Clef and I'm like, all right, let's do a song. And he's like, well, you know, what do you play? And I'm like, you know, I'm drunk. And I'm like, I play that and I could play that. And <laughs> so, so they stick me on keyboards and they just throw a song at me. Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. And I didn't know the song, but, you know, I, I had a decent enough ear where I could like hack together a version of it, like on stage as we were going. I took a solo and everything. And. Got a, uh, you know, got some applause from, from people who weren't my friends. So I'm like. That's nuts. That's, That's bunkers. That's, That's bananas. Nuts. And I go to get off the stage and Whiteclaff turns to me and he goes, don't quit your day job. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> because of course he did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I, and I,
1: got the download, I wasn't even familiar Dude. much with them at all, you know, yeah. like, at the time. So like I got oh. the download from one of my friends who, you know, like who knew them and he's like they invited you on stage. I'm like, I'm not sure that there was an invitation, but I, I, I stand with them. So that's a story. It, How it can they, really I it? really impressed. I should just, I should just wrap up the episode right now. Holy yeah. I mean, <laughs> totally quits.
0: That, that's great. Thanks so much. We'll love you everybody. Goodbye. We're, g- we're going to have
2: to re-edit this one. Just put Tom last. <laughs> oh man.
3: It's like going so, after pets or children. Yeah. So, so,
0: so, 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 Tom, was you being up on stage with Wycliffe like, uh, like your real moment of truth when it comes to uh, no. <laughs> It gets better.
1: Like, I, it, it's kind All of right. like a letdown after that. But, um, you know, like, uh, I, go I think what, you know, what defines like a real moment of truth is, again, though, like it's that, you know, association with a moment and with, you know, a period of time in your life. And, uh, you know, there was a period of time in my life where, like, you know, I just started basically a consulting business out of my apartment uh, in New York on the Upper East Side. It was one of those things, like, I think I really just needed to have a musical moment, you know, and I, I was going out to San Francisco because I, you know, I had, a, I had an existing client. And I had a new client I needed to put in some FaceTime with and, you know, this existing client that was doing a sales conference. So I'm like, all right, I'll put the things together and I'll go head out to San Francisco for a few days, I didn't know all that much about San Francisco. It wasn't the first time I was there, but you know, it was uh, the first time like I had time alone by myself to really just go explore the city. So, you know, I went down to Haight Ashbury, and I-, I remember being a little bit disappointed, you know, that, that the commercialism and that there were Starbucks all over the place, and you know, I was just walking around, just trying to get a feel for the flavor of the place. On my way back to my hotel, I just stumble into the Warfield Theater, and it, you know, it was one of those things like I didn't anticipate going to a show or anything, but there were scalpers outside, and the Counting Crows were playing. And I'm like, I like this band, you know. I don't know a heck of a lot about them, but you know, I, I I like the band. I have a couple of their albums, you know. Why not? You know, so give the guy like forty bucks or whatever, and go in. And the show was the thing that i loved about it is like i didn't know they were from san francisco so this was like them playing on their home turf mm-hmm. and it was a really fantastic show if you remember like i told you you know my earlier periods like where i sort of came from this is like not very characteristic for me this particular band uh you know i'm more into the heavier stuff i was really touched by the music was really just you know, I I love it. It was intense. I was just, you know, being by myself, I think gave me the ability to really like appreciate it rather than, you know, me and 10 of my favorite friends, you know, hanging out and dancing and slamming around gave me a lot of time for reflection. And, you know, I don't know if you know anything about Adam Duritz, the lead singer of the counting crows, but he's, you know, he's really sort of an activist kind of a guy. And this was like the first time I think I had been to a show Where he was talking about the AIDS crisis, he was talking about the homeless crisis, and you know, instead of people getting bored and like heading for the bathroom, everybody was hanging on his every word, and that like so impressed me that he was able to do that. Uh, You know, and he 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 had all these booths outside, like in the venue area, where you would go get T-shirts and stuff. There were all these booths for AIDS uh, charities and homeless charities, and like a few others that he was running off, and. you know, I just saw like these huge lines just start to form in front of these charity booths. And I was like, wow, like it was, it was so powerful that he had managed to connect like all the music and his fan base with, you know, causes and really get traction on it that I was like, all right, I, I feel like I get this city a little better. You know, it was, it was yeah. one of those things. It was almost like a perfect San Francisco moment, and it's really like what I went out, look, you know, looking for when I went for a walk to try to get a feel for the city. And I feel <laughs> like that show just delivered on it so much. Uh, you know, That's I cool. loved the music, and I loved the the activism and the you know the the caring and the just the feeling of community in that room. It was a small venue, uh, and I just loved it to death. It really was a perfect show. Yeah. Be- and, you know, I walked out of there and I just, I walked back to my hotel and I, I was just so glad that I had done that and that I had taken the time to walk into that show that, uh, you know, it just, it just really gave me a flavor for that city. And like, I, I always tell everybody, you know, like if, if, if I weren't going to go, you know, live in New York, cause you know, San Francisco is probably my second choice as the place I'd like to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You know, it's like the place matters. Okay, like live event in one place is not the same thing as a live event in another place. Like, like it definitely it draws from the environment, and that really has a unique feed into it. Uh, that show would have been different in the Nassau Coliseum in that zone. It it matters more if it lands different. So I I get that. I think it's really that's that's kind of a cool thing. You were actually able to be there at you know for the home field advantage kind of concert <laughs> you know which is
1: it's really kind of it really kind of matters cool. man you know like people yeah. will be like oh you know like i saw les paul i'm like i you know i saw les paul play the iridium his regular club gig in the city and that's a different experience than what you got you know it's, yeah <laughs> it's just a totally different thing. The intimate yeah. intimacy of the venue is, is so key.
0: One of the live shows I never got to see because the band no longer exists. But when I was in high school, well, still my favorite my favorite pop band is Oingo Boingo. And believe me, I took a lot of crap for it in high school. Like just I think because on it's Danny, El- Danny Elfman's Danny Elfman's band, yeah. Uh, yeah. and but apparently they had this thing where um, they're an LA band and they would every year have this big concert on Halloween. Danny Elfman's all in this spooky nonsense and all that sort of thing. And their last live album Uh, their farewell album it's recorded during that concert you can just even though it's a recording of a live event you can tell the energy there is is special because it's like that's their holiday in their town and it's like it just it lands different than a a typical live event in any other place so i totally get what you're saying there there, Tom. so so chris i know you're no stranger to live music i imagine you have a fair number of stories to tell us so i'm really eager to to figure out what your musical moment of truth is and kind of how you got to it because i imagine you've got a couple stories you want to
2: tell us in, in, in ramping up to it you imagine correctly, Bill, I, I, uh, I've been a live music fan since 1977 or maybe 76. The first time I heard Kiss Alive. Now that's a live band. <laughs> that, that is a live band. And Kiss Alive was so much better than anything they had recorded. You know, I was already a fan, but I heard that. And I'm, I mean, you know, how often is a live version of, of a song the definitive version? As 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 is the case with uh, Rock and Roll All Night. Yeah. So I mean, they were my favorite
1: bands. I want you to want I me. sorry.
2: I've always loved live music, and you know, I I went to concerts uh, really from an early age. Uh, I, w- I would sit on you know the, a blanket on the grass to see some country artist or or whatever. Brian Adams was my first uh, date concert, the first one I went to my, myself. That was that was pretty cool. Tom is so right about how music is tied to periods in your life, and and, and live performances can be as well. And that's a lot of what I want to talk about. I I, I saw a lot of live music sure over the years, but uh, a big experience for me was in about 2010 or 11. I, I saw Dumpster Funk in a tent at the uh, mustang music festival in Kerala, north carolina on the outer banks and can you describe dumpster funk i've never heard of them but i already love them for the for the name i can kind of imagine
0: yeah it dumps the funk it, it does <laughs> what it says on the tin man dumpster funk
2: it, they are a new orleans live band oh. i'm sorry a, a funk band that is fronted by ivan neville of the neville brothers oh okay i mean they're just a just a nasty funk band and I spent the, the 2000s uh, following this kid named Eli Cook, uh, who's a, a blues guitarist who did like a sort of like he did he did I guess I'd call it uh, like Soundgarden influence blues. It's like really heavy blues rock, and yeah, yeah. I, I would follow him around and, and I and I would dance my butt off at his shows, with, which which is weird. But then I I went to see Dumpster Funk and and started to hear the groove you know, and, and it changed the experience of dancing for me. You know, when you're watching a band live, especially when you're up close like that, you know, you, you see the bassist shift his shoulders as he's about to start a new lick and, and shift that rhythm a little bit, and, and you know it's coming. And and because it's funk, which is, you know, it's all based on blues and, and jazz, you, you, you know what's coming. And I gotta tell you, for the last 10 years or so, I have gotten a lot of looks in a lot of concerts like what the heck is going on with that old white dude? <laughs> is he okay? How, how, how's he doing that? <laughs> <laughs> so that night at that night at uh at Funk I mean I was I was in the groove and, and Ivan Neville leant down he, he leaned down off the stage and, and gave me some dap. And uh-huh. just like dude. It, it was like, you know, <laughs> The angels just, you know, <laughs> spread its wings above me, and the light just poured down. <laughs> That's so good, and it is so good. Billy, I, you may even remember this because a friend of mine at the time, still a friend of mine, apparently took some video, and and she she said she was going to put it on Facebook, and she never did. And I was always super disappointed because I was like, you know what, I want documentary evidence. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: well, I'd pay, I'd pay cash experience. money to see that. That'd and, be
2: good. More recently, uh, our own. Tom Hespos, uh, came to DC and went to a Galactic show with me, another New Orleans funk band that I uh, I
0: have to thank you, by the, the way,
2: for turning me on else. to Galactic. I never knew them
0: until you were like, I have one word for you, and that word is Galactic. And you <laughs> do your homework, and I was like, okay, whatever, and I listened to it, and I was like, my jaw just unhinged from my, my the rest of my skull. I had to put it back on again. I'm like, holy Moses, these guys are filthy. I love
2: them. They're so good it's it, galactic if you don't know them, a new orleans funk band been around for 25 years they're kind of like the the spiritual heirs to the meters who you know who are gods of, of funk of, of early funk and they're just so much fun so much fun live yeah you know, they play with people like trombone shorty and they pull vocalists off out of other bands who come in and, and, and do shows with them they don't have a permanent vocalist but tom came down and we saw a uh, a galactic show, it was their last tour with Erica Falls, as a matter of fact, singing, and it was a great show. And Tom, Tom made that night magical. I, I gotta tell you, Bill, he, he he, was, I mean, every time I turned around, there he was, handing me a gin and tonic or, or, <laughs> or, you know, like at one point I'm like, all right, I gotta get up toward the front, I wanna dance. And he just took me by the back of the neck Tom's a big fella, y'all, and just steered me right through the crowd, just pushed me bodily through them until I was like, you know, eight feet from the stage. And Tom, uh, well, it was a magical night, Tom, and and, uh, and and I've thanked you before, and it's always a pleasure oh, to thank man, I you. I love
1: again. that night too, Chris. Thanks. <laughs> you know, like,
2: I am not a dancer typically at these shows. That night, I
1: danced. Uh, <laughs> And yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the gin and tonics had something to do with it. But, uh, you know, it brought out the inner Long Islander in me, which meant like, oh, it's Chris's birthday. And Chris wants to be in front of the stage very close. We're going to make that happen. <laughs> 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 By force, if necessary.
2: <laughs> T- Tom was just uh, what, a, what a friend. It was it was it was gorgeous. What he did. It, was, it was beautiful. Love it. A few years earlier, I saw a Coldplay in um, Virginia Beach and i was with my wife who was heavily pregnant probably seven to eight months and and Coldplay starts playing uh, god put a smile on your face which, which starts with this kick drum and snare line <laughs> anyway she grabs my hand and pulls it over and puts it on her belly and and i can feel eli kicking and i swear to god he was kicking in time with that that kick drum it It was, I've got goosebumps right now. It was, uh, I got goosebumps, an incredibly magical moment, and and it, yeah, that can't happen without live music, else you can get a bass drum that loud. I saw Pink Floyd live in 1994, which was an amazing, amazing show, amazing. Mm. But when you watch Pink Floyd, it's like listening to an album. You were talking, Bill, about how well, I just listened to the studio album because it's predictable, and well, the quality is generally better, it's a fact, yeah. Pink Floyd when they put on a concert I mean it's indistinguishable and and as gorgeous and amazing as it was it lacked something mm-hmm. it, it lacked that vital heartbeat you know that that the, the feeling that you were that you were experiencing something in the moment mm-hmm. they might as well have been lip syncing it was so good you know yeah
3: yeah not their first time
2: right <laughs> <laughs> so so you know, fast forward to my actual moment of truth i saw radiohead in 2008 on the in rainbows tour and it was at uh, nissan pavilion outside of dc and it, it was a terrible terrible night it was uh in the 50s which is quite quite chill for for may in, in virginia and it was absolutely pouring rain there was flooding on the road to get in so the, the start of the concert was delayed i was there with my ex-wife who happily wasn't pregnant but she was as gen as she usually was kind of bitter <laughs> this is this is a sad way that, that that things are tied to moments in our lives uh th- this was the year that that i separated from my wife mm-hmm. It's a terrible night. She's just having the worst time. She's cold, and although we're covered, rain's blowing in, so you can feel it occasionally, but Radiohead comes on, and I swear to God, you you guys can, we do these meetings on Zoom, folks, uh, so these guys can see my my face and the background that I have, which is uh, a shot from that uh, concert stage show. They had these you know, acrylic or, or or whatever tubes filled with LEDs hanging off, hanging out of the rigging, and, and and it sort of created like a room. The tubes came out came down to above the band's heads up on, on on the center of the stage, but on the sides, all the way to the ground. And they had a, a five part video screen with a camera on each band me- band member uh, behind them, behind the, and behind those tubes. And they just used the LED tubes for mood, and and it was like. A freaking cathedral and if you've ever listened to radiohead you, you know how complex their music is yeah and unlike the feeling that i got at that pink floyd show this was so alive that it's almost indescribable tom york the lead singer played i believe eight instruments that night Oof. including a, a drum kit <laughs> <laughs> on one song where he 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 and Phil Selway were for, were doing drums and, and and you know you know how how studio-ish their music is they do that on stage in real time <laughs> i mean they, i mean you know the the band the, the members of the band are actually using mixing panels yeah, that's a, as quite, they play
0: that, that's quite a level of virtuosity and on, and, on and it's
2: astounding to watch and and that kind of moment Those kinds of moments of beauty are something that I only get Mm -hmm. with live music. That feeling that you're in a place with people performing for you, they are as into it as you are, and everything's great. I mean, and everything is, there's this gestalt that I love. Mm -hmm. That night, uh, Tom York had, had to restart one tune called Foul Start twice we, we played it three times because he, he effed up the beginning and just wasn't satisfied <laughs> he, he would play like 40 seconds in and uh, no 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 and and that didn't ruin anything at all <laughs> at all you know it, yeah. it, 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 it it was it was a poorer performance than i, I would have got on the record but what a thing to see yeah, mm-hmm. yeah of course uh good. i mean you know the, the that night was also bad because sally eventually got so angry that she dragged me out during the encore which turns out to i, I found out later turns out to have only been the first encore oh. uh, the, the the song i heard as uh as we were leaving was optimistic from kid a great tune uh and and they they later premiered uh i believe talk show host uh which is the song they did I could be wrong about this. But it's the song they did on uh the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. And it was the first time they played it on the tour. And I missed it. And <laughs> sorry dude. I know,
1: <sighs> I know I know. I know you wanna say it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I I will. I will. We I to be will positive never here. Fr- We're positive be here. Worse I of you
1: if you did, Chris. <laughs>
2: it, it, it's it's not the worst thing. It's not. It's not what I hold most against Sally or, or anything. But oh, uh, I will. I will resent her for the rest of my life for that. Because <laughs> well, well,
3: yeah. <laughs> special, special. Uh, well,
0: so, somebody said before, Chris, I thought it was interesting. This this podcast is called Moments of Truth, but you said the term Moment of Beauty, and I think that's something about great art. Art in the moment that it it's like a direct pipeline of beauty like it's like looking at the sun like you're seeing it in such an unfiltered way it's Indeed. so much more intense and sometimes it's almost like you need to Indeed. shut yourself off I and mean, it's so intense you can't take it it's it's filling you up so fast there's there's no more there's nowhere else for it to go kind of a kind of an energy you know you feel like you're going to burn it's so it's so much and to, to have access to that kind of thing at like a live event especially it's it is so special it is so awesome and it is so singular you know and that's that's why I really really love about these things. Just fantastic, Joe. I would love to get your your moment of truth because I know you've got you've got some pretty cool storytelling to do as well here. And I'd love to I'd love to see what what you've come up with.
3: Uh, yeah, thank you. You know, it's funny compared to you guys, I don't go to shows that much. Uh, we never really had money when I was a kid to to go to shows, but, and as an adult, I've been a few times to see my favorites. Josh Ritter is one of my favorites. If you haven't heard any of his stuff, he's one of the most talented poetic lyricists out there today but so look that up if you haven't also i've been to billy joel any number of times um you know like the, like the rest of us i saw a bunch of acts when I was in college fishbone boston's green day P. you
0: saw fishbone huh
3: oh yeah oh that's a whole
0: i was different. a huge fishbone fan i never got to see them though i love those guys oh
3: yeah angelo angelo came out beforehand while we were bullgang in the floor and 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 read to us from his book of poetry which i won't give the name of uh, here because
2: it's a, I got over of the story. It's good stuff.
3: He was a little messed up. I, he was altered, um, and that's he was I, altered. That show actually, it was Fishbone, uh, a local band called Fly Spinach Fly, and Queen Latifah right at the tail end of her uh, musical. When she was still doing uh, rap, I also I did wind up once up in Bowden on BB King's tour bus with a couple of friends, and he let us hold Lucille <gasps> on his
0: guitar. No oh, way, oh.
3: Um, yeah. So it was a small show up. In Bowdoin. Did it? Did it?
0: Um, did it burn your
3: fingertips? No, it came from the devil. I have have soul. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. My my buddy tried to kiss it, and he said, "Nobody else kisses Lucille. Give me her back." (laughs) But um, he uh, and that, by the way, BB King rocks really hard. This guy, he comes out, he comes out, he comes out on stage, and it starts really, really slow. But as he winds up, it's amazing. Um, I once went to an Alan, Alan Jackson concert for a girl, and that's the first time in my life I ever wished I was both deaf and blind. But interestingly, actually the most compelling one, this isn't my moment of truth, but the most compelling moment I ever experienced in a live performance was uh, on Broadway. Um, I actually went uh, in 97 to the close of the revival of 1776 and it was the last show they did and we were about 10 rows back. Brent Spiner was in the John Adams role. Um, and that dude can he sing. Show, he couldn't. That dude can, he sing. can sing. He can sing and he, he couldn't finish. He, couldn't, he lost his voice and the audience willed him to finish. It was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. But uh, when it comes to my moment of truth, I'll also tell a story because we're storytellers. That's what we do. Um, You know, it's funny, my first instinct with this topic was to talk about April 30th in 1996. That was a night near the end of my junior year at the University of New Hampshire when my future first wife, Jen, and I went to Worcester to see Billy Joel do one of those small audience lecture demos where, you know, play a little, talk a little, joke around, uh, tell stories. It was like VH1 storytellers before that was a thing. Um, Anyway, it it was this intimate club setting. It was like 100 people great chance to be up close and my favorite artist doing all of his cool stuff. And uh, the context though was really important for that. At, at midnight that night, uh, my term of office as student body president would start uh, May 1st. And so that was like this culmination, right? Of all these years of work and the, my life's work of service that I wanted to get into. It really felt like a, 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 an important moment for me. I was also with a woman that I had carried a torch for since high school and never seemed to work out that we were on the same page. But that night, at, literally at midnight, we returned to campus uh, as the page turns, I assume office and I have my first kiss with this woman. And it was like on this high from my favorite Iris in this moment. It was it was really pretty cool. It was very deeply satisfying um, moments. One of my most satisfying moments I had on the planet to that point. But that's not my moment of truth. For that, we got to go fast forward six years. And Chris, you kind of gave some foreshadowing to this. It's, uh, it's April of 2002. I don't remember the exact date. And I'm in some club in Somerville, Mass. I don't remember the exact club it could have been uh you know johnny D's, josh tree the burn i don't know uh somewhere in uh davis square i think i was with this buddy of mine and his new wife in 26 my first marriage was in tatters i was in the process of separating from jen i was overweight i was exhausted i felt completely like a personal professional failure this was like the nadir of my life right so we're in this dopey club we're in the last place i wanted to be and some really crappy band called carbon leaf was playing the kind of stoner hippie rock I studiously avoided throughout college. <laughs> and yet at that precise moment, I'm listening to this like banal groove, right? And I just, I just sort of remember letting it all go. I remember for the first time I was completely relinquishing control. I'd been this, this hard driving, ambitious achiever all my life. It had worked gloriously up until adulthood. And then I was like, I'd found the ditch, right? Like this was, things were not going well. And uh, all that effort and that monomaniacal control, I'd always... Relied on was showing me no way out. I was completely terrified. I'm in that dingy bar with that hippy dippy band, and I, I just remember breathing out and throwing up my hands and saying to hell with it. And I, I drank some and danced. And I'm not a dancer. I'm, it's funny. I'm actually a classically trained dancer in tap, jazz, and ballet, but I'm not one of these like dance. You know, I'm I, Chris. I, I, I would not be able to hold the candle to you in the moment. In those places. I, I could um, be
2: pathetic for all I know. So,
3: well, you know, no, there's not. There, There is literally nothing pathetic about dance. It's it's the highest form of human physical expression. Um,
0: I have to support you there. I think skill does not need to meet enthusiasm when it comes to dance. And under the right conditions, one is just as good as the other.
3: (laughs) Yeah, with the possible exception of Elaine Bennis, I think you're correct. Uh, So I I just, I came to grips. And that was the first time at 26. I came to grips with the fact that I wasn't going to pitch a perfect game in life and that it was going to be okay. Uh, I accepted that there were bruises and pain and and suck, and I acknowledged that better days would come. They might not be the days that I expected or that I planned, but days that would bring joy and accomplishment, satisfaction, of some different other beautiful kind. Um, It was sort of the beginning of my next life. It was a very seminal page turning moment. And actually six months later, I began dating my wife, Sarah, uh, to whom I'm still married. And to this day, when Carbon Leaf's Life Less Ordinary comes on, I, I'm there, I'm in that moment, and I have this surge of hope. And whenever I play it on purpose, I try really hard to remember that we're all broken, and yet better days are coming. I've played that song actually a lot um, over the last couple of months, and it's a really a not a good band. And they have this one halfway decent song that I wanted no part of, and yet it's become you know a, a key component of my discography. Because of um, when it happened to me and how it happened to me,
0: this is a great story because it speaks to that unique power of a live music event. Where it may not even be a band you're particularly into, you know, but you know, but it can conjure this energy that's unique to you, unique to the scene, unique to that moment, unique sonically, and it comes together to provide this really special effect. It can't be re- replicated in any other way. Not just a special effect like wow, I had a great show, but. It can, these moments can be, they can be like a fulcrum point. It can be a moment of great reflection or great awakening, you know, and music can unlock these doors um, and a live event can do it, which is which I've always been so fascinated by them. And I just, I just, I love the story so much because these guys weren't your favorite band. It wasn't your favorite song. It was a song. I, I'm guessing you you heard this song for the first time, right? Like. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet this is the one, this is the grain of of rice that tipped the scale for you and gave you this this insight which is really freaking cool you wouldn't have gotten that by i mean i suppose one could have that same moment listening to something at home with headphones on but i imagine it's more likely to happen when you're there in the moment you're surrounded by people you're surrounded by people's energy not to get too metaphysical about it but it's like you're at a live event everybody's there putting off a certain vibe and that all comes together in a very special very beautiful
2: way it's generally a very positive vibe
3: yeah I also think that there's something to be said for something you have never experienced before. Like when I go to a, a show of you know, Billy Joel Josh Joshua, a one that I really love and I'm, I'm singing along and everybody else is singing and it's sort of this fan experience. Right. And to, I think about what Tom was talking about when he said, I'm going to say, yes, maybe it's a band I've never heard of. Maybe it's some band. Yeah. I'm going to go experience something new and it's sui generis. Right. And, and, and so I think that it would have been hard for me to have that kind of moment with something with which I was fluent mm-hmm. because I would have had a, um, more cultivated relationship with the, with the music. Uh, I had no relationship. I had no inoculation against what, what came. Um, and so when it came, it hit me square.
1: Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Sometimes that happens, you know, like something that you just completely unfamiliar with. I mean, like I, I imagine some of you might've been like me and like when I arrived on campus at Washington Lee, I, did not know who Jimmy Buffett was. Um, mm-hmm. No, uh,
0: you lucky uh, bastard. No Jimmy it. Buffett, <laughs> no. Leonard Skinner, Uh I had heard some. I had heard my my local classic rock radio station WZZO Z um, ninety five. They they would often play tracks off the Steve Miller Band's Greatest Hits album, which apparently was the law. you had to buy at some point, but I never did because why bother? Because everybody I knew had it. <laughs> Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, but I didn't know. Yeah, can I borrow this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, to your point, Tom. I came from the exact same zone of music, and so I was just as much a fish out of water when I got to school as, as you were as you were saying.
1: Yeah, but you know, if you if you just say yes to everything, I mean, I never would have found myself at Merriweather Post Pavilion in Baltimore having this insane experience. You know, like watching people pull trailers into the parking lot of the jimmy buffett concert that were like fully built tiki bars with you know like coconuts (laughs) and bamboo and everything and like it was just an insane like the whole party happened like before the concert it is a good time It's a
3: fantastic yeah.
1: time. i have never it's seen a good anything time. like it. And, uh, you know, like, it, it introduced me to actually, like, I, what I think is kind of, like, more of a cultural experience than anything I've been. Yeah, yeah. yeah I wouldn't call it a musical experience. Since, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, exactly. I loved it. You know, and, yeah. like, oh, yeah, guy who goes <laughs> yeah, out to uh, you know, in Montauk and, and Southampton College and stuff out east on the island, you know, he had, I think he had a place out there at some point, and, uh, you know, I'd never been out to see him. So, you know, I took my whole family one time. We got Tommy Bahama shirts and we went. It was a great time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fantastic. I don't, you know, you guys have been impressing me with some of your really cool close encounter stories with, with major musical talent. I have no such stories, but I will say my brother, Frank, uh, got to go sailing with Jimmy Buffett one time. He was on the sailing program down in the Caribbean for a summer and their boat came in you know, to this little island one time, they pulled in the dock for the night, and Buffett pulls in right next to him on his boat, and he's like, "Hey, I'm going out a little." And you saw that there were all these teenage kids. He goes, "Hey, I'm going out, you know, for another, you know, quick spin around the island. Anybody want to come with me?" And everybody on Frank's crew was like, "Yeah," and I'm kind of beat, and Frank didn't even know who he was. He just he, he's he's like, "I'll go, sure," and that's how he meets Jimmy Buffett, and is sailing on on this boat with Jimmy Buffett in the Caribbean, just like two little pirates doing their thing. I was like, "Dude." <laughs> know as i said at the top of the show you know i didn't grow up in a particularly musical household my mom didn't really listen to much music at all my dad didn't listen to much music at all until in later years strangely he became enamored of broadway Hmm. and he was not the kind of guy you would have thought would be into theater but he loved going to broadway shows he loved listening to those soundtracks and along the way he became a massive barbara streisand and kenny rogers fan and again if you knew my dad None of these (laughs) things add up. And so I'm like, that's the musical legacy you have to guide me with? This? Dad, come on. I went to school, you know, seriously into, like I said, Oingo Boingo, really into metal. You know, my first show I ever went to actually was at the Felt Forum. I saw Anthrax, Megadeth, and uh, no, sorry, Anthrax, Nuclear Assault, and uh, Halloween. No, I went to school in Virginia, like Tom and Chris, and and the musical scene there was totally different. And so I got exposed to a lot of music I hadn't listened to. But more importantly, I got exposed to a lot of live music. Relatively small school, 16 national fraternities there, right? So which is a remarkably Greek social life. And a lot of these fraternities often had live bands, at least once a month or so. Band parties were just a big deal. Sometimes there are these really cruddy little local bands. Sometimes there are these great bands, you know, that were just getting started, you know. I got to listen to a ton of really cool live music experiences up close and personal, sometimes altered, sometimes not, but, but I, I got to really appreciate what it meant to, to soak up some live music, you know? I think my favorite live music experience in college, though, wasn't at a formal performance, actually. It was when I had two fraternity brothers, two friends of mine. One's name is Travis Corder, the other's name is Neil McKenzie. So Neil was this very unusual, fascinating dude. I love Neil. Canadian fellow who was a bagpiper, among other things. <laughs> and Travis was from Florida. And he was this cool, like, and still is. He does this, like, cool folk rock, you know, guitar playing. And he was just, and, and I would hang out at Travis's place all the time, listening to him play. Neil would come over every once in a while. And one time he's like, hey, man, um, want to do some tunes? And Travis is like, yeah, sure. He goes, I'll be back. And he goes and brings back his full bagpipes. And suddenly he and Travis just start jamming. And it's it's this like, this kind of music I had never heard before. It was very much like Celtic folk jigs and reels. And they were just, and this is a very, you know, organic kind of music where you just, you know, it's improvisational. It's just, it just rolls and, and ebbs and flows. And they did this reel called Moving Cloud, which um, I was just entranced by how fantastic it was and how these two guys had never played together, let alone this song, but the chemistry was so in sync like Travis is there playing rhythm guitar in the background. He's letting Neil do his thing with the pipes. Neil would back off and Travis would come up with the guitar. And the two were just so marvelous. It was like, I really felt like it was like to be in the presence of a spell being cast. I was that ensorcelled by the moment. And it was so fantastic. And I so loved it. And I've, in years since, I've bought several recordings of different people doing Moving Cloud. And not a one of them touches just the sublimity of being there, watching Trav and Neil just jam out, moving cloud, and it was such a fantastic time. And we weren't hammered or anything; we we're just hanging out. It was like a Tuesday night, and they just decided no homework, tunes, and they just played. And I was like, "This is what it means to play." And I, I so appreciated that moment. That was really that that moment I come back to quite a lot when I think of like why do I love why do I love live music? You know, it's a really really cool thing. And I had a, kind of a similar moment many years later, actually not long ago, when my son played live. My son Connor, who's now seventeen years old and so we live now near the city of asbury park new jersey which has got a pretty pretty cool music scene for those of you who don't know asbury park and my part of mom the county it's the stomping ground of bruce springsteen of john bon jovi a couple others john stewart lives nearby but he's not a musical dude but asbury park has got these venues that are these very famous venues and so my son goes to this music school in asbury park the whole deal is to get you to play in a band and to get you to play live, and so rather than having recitals, they have these you know big gigs. My son has played at you know the Stone Pony. He's played at these other places. That these and, and he and he can give you like what it's like to be on there. Like yeah, the Pony's cool for this, but it sucks for this. I'm like dude, I that's that's a virtuosity. I, I, I mean that's a credibility I don't have. That's really cool. You can say these things, you know. Like the backstage of this place is awesome. This one's no good. But I'll never forget. It was I think it was like his second or maybe third big gig where he's playing with this one band and um and connor's really getting good and he was clearly he was the oldest guy in the band the best one of them and the band frankly was kind of a hot mess when they played this school's smart they they know the parents you know the rough age of parents are that are paying so they have them play music that i know right so they like they go up do their big gig and they're playing pearl jam they're playing nirvana they're playing songs. I'm like, yes, rock on, you know. So at this one performance, they're playing one of my very favorite songs of all time, which is uh, mm-hmm. Zombie by the Cranberries. And they get up there and it's not, it's you know, it's it's a little, a little iffy. But then Connor steps forth and is doing lead guitar and starts shredding that wailing plaintive guitar solo in the middle of it, you know. And as he's doing it, the band coalesces behind him and they get their act together he's leading them on and the music that that song builds up and it's like it was building and building and I was looking at my son and he's just holding it together by dint of this guitar he's shredding on and it's like he was standing on a mountain casting lightning and just all of a sudden just my eyes just opened up and tears ran down my face and I was like he's look at the Look at what he's doing. Like, this is such a wonderful thing. My son is conjuring this, this fantastic thing that otherwise there would have been nothing there. There would have been silence, you know? And, and again, it's like the power of live music. And I got to watch him do it. And I was so, so thrilled. Because I can sing a bit. I never learned a musical instrument. I'll never be that guy on stage, apart from, you know, karaoke night, which <laughs> I can't do now to karaoke. But that's a totally different thing. But seriously, he was there on stage crushing it. And I was like, I wasn't as proud of my son because I was proud of my son. I am proud of my son, but I was in awe of my son. And that was a, that was a really great moment. And, and that music made that happen, but that's actually not my moment of truth. Really? Believe it or not. It's not my moment of truth.
1: There is nothing like watching your kid rock out like that. Like, Oh, that feeling is universal. Like when you are able to see them do that
0: and have that culminate. Yeah. I'm going to say it's not my moment of truth only because it only happened like a year ago. I think as time goes on, that'll probably become my moment of truth. But mm-hmm. for now, the, the moment of truth is something that happened before then. And again, it's another one of these moments that I think kind of helped lay the groundwork for me to be receptive when my son <laughs> did these things. This was a moment that took place on May 3rd, 2007 and i was in i was in new orleans so when chris was talking about new orleans bands i'm like okay mine's about a new orleans band and new orleans is the most musical city on the face of planet earth yes it is bar none right and at that time i was working for a trade association and we had this really big conference every year and it was in a different city every year and they set up which city they go to years in advance right the first night you get in town like you can't do all the carousing people do because you know next morning you got to get up bright and early to start the newspaper, right? So it's the last night you're there is when everybody goes out and actually explores the city and does something. So 2007, we're in New Orleans. And, you know, 2005, Katrina laid the city to waste. And so when we went down there in early 2007, the company I worked for was only the second big show to come into that that town. Conferences, conventions, exhibitions was a huge source of revenue for New Orleans. And so we were the second big show to come into that town after the storm. And the city was still largely devastated. All that really was up and running like it had been before was the French Quarter and the, the Morini District, right? With basically what they call the sliver by the river, right? This one little area that was on top of a natural levee so it didn't flood, uh, which, good thing for the town, is like where most of the heavy tourism stuff actually happens. First night we're there, my team very unwisely was like, well, let's just, let's just take a look at Bourbon Street, see what it's like, just to see it. Well, You know, Bourbon Street is one of those places on the planet where it's like everything you've heard about is absolutely true. It's like the Star Wars cantina, but with real people. And it will swallow you up whole and spit out the seeds. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought we were just having a drink. And then next thing you know, you and three of your colleagues are literally arm in arm, blind drunk, trying to get home before you completely black out wondering where did my night go? And that's kind of what happened to us. It was, it involved hurricanes, it involved absinthe, it involved all kinds of shenanigans. It was stuff I can't repeat. Um, it was just a crazy night. And so we all wake up, like feeling like we've been mugged by the city itself. Like, how did this happen? None of us meant for this to happen, right? So the last night we're there, we're like, okay, let's go out again. But this time, let's actually remember it. So we go out and it's a much tamer night. There's always musical acts happening all over the place. But you know, there are all these big acts for all the conventioneers and all that. So there's a lot of music happening. Great acts, but they didn't feel like legit new orleans type stuff it was like stuff ginned up for the tourists you know and we're like okay so we did these things it gets to be like midnight and the show's end but we know that there's a whole second shift in new orleans right people start going on at like two o'clock in the morning and play till five let's find one of these bands let's get some proper Nolans and, and and check this out so but well, we know where to go so a guy on my team he's got a friend down the dominican republic he texts him he's like dude where do we go and the guy goes you need to go to the apple barrel it's on frenchman street go there so we walk about half a mile. Basically, it's on the edge of the French Quarter. At this point, the city's still pretty jacked up. So we're getting this area. It's like, it's getting darker and darker, quieter and quieter. We're like, where are we? So we get to the Apple Barrel. And the Apple Barrel is, it was a pretty legit New Orleans place. I mean, it's this small little bar. And I mean small, like literally that place is like the size of my living room. You can look it up online and you know, look up the Apple Barrel, New Orleans, and you'll see photos. And you'll be amazed at how tiny the place is you walk in there's a little alcove in the wall just big enough for three guys side by side to kind of stand there and that's basically the stage it's up next against the bar right And then there's like you know a couple of tables it's super super tiny crammed in and playing that night is an act called ken swartz and the palace of sin and little did i know that they had actually just formed this is like new orleans blues right and we're listening to these guys and they go on for you know a long time they're fantastic and you know, it gets on to around four o'clock in the morning. And at this point, and the funny thing is, I wasn't like hammered or anything. I was just, I was actually, I hadn't, I think I maybe had one drink the whole night. So I was like, I want to take this in. And we get to about four o'clock in the morning and they're, they're winding down. And they play this song called Louisiana 1927. Now, Louisiana 1927 is a song written by Randy Newman back in the 70s about this flood. Now, I'm not a Randy Newman fan. Okay, I think his voice sounds goofy and clownish. I don't dig it. It works when he's singing You Got a Friend in Me for Toy Story, you know, but right. that's that's about it, okay? But this guy's covering it. And Ken Swartz has got this like raspy, gravelly, bluesman voice, and he starts singing this, this tune. And if you don't know the song, it's this plainful, mournful, it's almost like a dirge. The lyrics are, what has happened down here is the winds have changed. Clouds roll in from the north and it start to rain. Rain real hard, it rained for a real long time six feet of water in the streets of Evangeline. The river rose all day, the river rose all night. Some people got lost in the flood, some people got away all right. The river had busted through, cleared down to Plaquemines, six feet of water in the streets of Evangeline. Louisiana, Louisiana, they're trying to wash us away. They're trying to wash us away. Louisiana, Louisiana, they're trying to wash us away. President Coolidge came down in a railroad train with a little fat man with a notepad in his hand, President say, little fat man isn't a shame. What the river had done to this poor cracker's land. Louisiana, Louisiana, they're trying to wash us away. They're trying to wash us away. Louisiana, Louisiana, they're trying to wash us away. They're trying to wash us away. And I listened to him sing this. And that moment I explained to you when I listened to Connor, it was that was me. And just my whole, I, I don't know how to explain it. I just felt like a door opened up and just, I had never felt such raw emotion coming from art before because it wasn't just a great song, well done. It was this guy was, was singing a funeral wail for his town. Like, he, like I felt like he had channeled all the pain and anguish that everybody in New Orleans felt when they saw their city drown, when they saw the government leave them behind, when they saw the waters recede, when they saw that they were going to rise again. And then when they saw people come back, and it captured all those things. And I was so, I, I couldn't contain myself. I couldn't explain it. And my, my coworkers saw me. I was having this complete breakdown, but I had never felt so opened up by music before. And I never felt so vulnerable to it. And so, you know, it, it, I just felt like I was getting a, a beam right from the sun. <laughs> you know, it was, it was that powerful. I didn't think I'd ever feel that way again until I watched Connor play, to be honest with you. It, the Connor, that was the first time I felt that intensity unexpected unbidden and just hitting me and I had no defense for it and nor would I ever want one it was one of the most magical moments of my life just as a as an appreciator of music and as an artist it was um that's
1: that's the heavy magic that's the old magic oh yeah absolutely Now I feel like we've got to put together a New Orleans trip after COVID, you know? Heck
2: yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Let's go to Tipitina's, man.
1: That's some of the greatest musical experiences of my life in New Orleans, too. And it is just an amazing musical city for that kind of... If if that's what you like to do and you like to go out and find something that's, you know, authentic and and moving, I mean, I don't think there's a better place to find it. It is fantastic.
0: Only other place I've ever been to where... I know there are other very heavy music cities in the world. The only other one I've went to that even approached it was Dublin, Ireland, where there are just buskers everywhere. Deeply, deeply musical city, but it comes from a different place. It just, in it, it, I loved it. It's great. I have a huge appetite for that kind of music, but it felt different. And New Orleans was like, New Orleans is New Orleans. And I went there again a couple of times for work. And a few years ago, I went again for the same conference, actually. But the mood was different because the city was kind of back to normal. Mm. And so there wasn't this sense of, recent tragedy everybody's trying to get over so that was in the air when i was there that first time and i think if i'd seen ken swartz in the palace of sin sing that song again it wouldn't be the same wouldn't be i saw other bands that were kind of like what chris is talking about this you know i saw this one band and they were just there's like six or eight guys i got a brass section they're just playing their booties off it, they're going so hard and it's like they, they, some of the most energized musicians i've ever seen have been in new orleans you know and it's like it's all part of a of a thing like when katrina happened i put on my, my risk management hat i'm like you know this city will flood again one day maybe the smart thing is to walk away from the city and not rebuild it which is an incredibly callous thing to think yeah. if you've never been there and thankfully i got to go there and realize this city must never perish from the face of the year absolutely not it was a great moment where I realized just how little I knew what I was talking about when it came to that thing. I was like, this, most cities are like this, frankly, but I was like, New Orleans is a very, very special, very precious place. It's, it is a unique, I mean, I've been to a lot of places in this world. There's something about New Orleans that is just really unusual and the music is a big part of it. You know, we get back to kind of a final thought as we wrap up and I think I'd like to Rather than offer my own thoughts on this, I want to read to you something. It's an excerpt from an essay by Aldous Huxley called The Rest is Silence. It's it's from Music at Night and Other Essays, uh, which he published in 1931. And uh, I excerpted some, some pieces of it, but I think they kind of speak a little bit to this mystery and magic of the things we've been talking about. And he writes, from pure sensation to the intuition of beauty, from pleasure and pain to love and the mystical ecstasy and death, all the things that are fundamental All the things that to the human spirit are most profoundly significant can only be experienced, not expressed. The rest is always and everywhere silence. After silence, that which comes nearest to expressing the inexpressible is music. In a different mode, on another plane of being, music is the equivalent of some man's most significant and most inexpressible experiences. By mysterious analogy, it evokes in the mind of the listener sometimes the phantom of these experiences, sometimes even the experiences themselves in their full force of life. We are grateful to the artist, especially the musician, for saying clearly what we have felt but never been able to express. When the inexpressible had to be expressed, Shakespeare laid down his pen and called for music. And if the music should also fail, well, there was always silence to fall back on. For always, always and everywhere, the rest is silence. Guys, thanks so much for being with us tonight. This is Moment of Truth, and uh, we will see you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.